Band, thank you very much. Let's just thank them for how they lead us in worship. You guys are doing a great job for us. Okay, if you want to uh, stick a finger in Acts chapter 1, Romans 3 and Hebrews 9, those three places would be some things that you can mark um, where you can flip there quickly. Um, We are starting a series that we're going to be in for for most of this fall, and we're going to be running through the book of Acts. And so uh, if you want to do some reading out in front of us, feel free. Um, It might help you as we get in here and we talk through it together. And so we're going to start in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, and uh, we're going to start there and start reading and make it for four verses today. So here we go. Um, Starts this way, Acts 1, verse 1, in the first book. And so um, we need to stop there and clarify what he's saying. He is saying that, that there's two books here. If you want to view it um, correctly, you'd have to think of it in terms of like maybe two volumes to one work. And so you have got the, the Gospel of Luke, volume one, and then you've got Acts, volume two of that. So you've got one work, two volumes. Luke is part one, Acts is part two. So he's saying this, in the first book, in the Gospel of Luke is the first book, in that book, O Theophilus is the next phrase. And so if you go to Luke 1, he's going to say that, um, O excellent Theophilus. And here's what we pretty much know about Theophilus is that he is a Jewish Christian. Or, I'm sorry, a Gentile Christian, probably in the Roman government in some way, shape, or form. So he's kind of on the upper end of society. So that's who the book is written to. Now let me read for you the first couple of verses in Luke. I think it's going to be on the screen for you. You don't have to flip there, but you can, you can look it up on the screen. I think this helps clarify why it's important for us to go through this book as a church. So here we go. It says this. This is Luke writing to Theophilus. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just that they have been handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything. So Luke's saying, listen, this is not something I'm making up here. This is me carefully investigating these details. Just as I've carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Let me give you two reasons why I think it's good for us as a church to spend some time in Acts this fall. Number one is it's going to give us a great picture of just a descriptive picture of what the early church was like. Now, when we read through the the book of Acts, it's not saying that this is the way theologically churches have to be set up. It's not doing that. It's giving us a descriptive view of the church. So it's saying this is how they operated. This is written about the church, not a theology of the church. So it's written about the church. Here's your descriptive picture. And here's what I think we're going to find. That we're going to see some very encouraging examples of people who have radically surrendered all to Jesus and are giving life away in that pursuit. I think it's going to be really encouraging for you personally and for us as a church. But here's the second reason. It's because it's written to a skeptic. Theophilus is a, is a Gentile Christian who is struggling. Okay, I've stepped across the line. I believe this thing, but it didn't work out like I thought. Like there's some things that I, I need the blanks filled in here. And so here, here's what I love about this. I, I think this really hits a lot of us in this room that we come on Sunday morning, but there's a part of us that has this thing in the back of our mind of, I'm just not sure about that. Like, I'm here, I'm listening, I'm seeing, but I'm just not exactly sure about the whole deal. And I think it's a beautiful book. Luke, 
Acts written to you and to friends you want to bring that fit into that boat. I think it's going to be beautiful illustrations and pictures that are going to be encouraging and really insightful for you. If you're sitting on the outside of that thinking, um, I'm here, but not sure. Not sure. And so Acts fits perfectly there. Okay, so let's keep going here. In the first book, O Theophilus, and then this is going to be our key phrase for the morning. I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Verse 2, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commandments through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Okay, I want to draw your attention back to this phrase. I have dealt in the book of Luke, Gospel of Luke, he is saying this, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. The book of Luke, the gospel of Luke is written about Jesus. Now, here's what this implies about Luke that we're going to are in Acts, what we're going to be in for this fall. It's implying that, okay, Jesus started something and that he passes that on to us to continue it. The book of Acts is really Jesus passing this torch and saying, okay, now I've started this. I've finished my part. And now through the Holy Spirit, I'm about to carry all that out through you. I'm about, to, I'm about to write all these pages now through you. Okay, now if you start reading the book of Acts, you're going to see beautiful like, illustrations of that, beautiful pictures of that. All throughout the books of, book of Acts, you're going to see these radical pictures of surrender. Radical acts of service and sacrifice. Okay, now here's what the, the religious leaders of the day are going to say about these people in Acts. They're going to say, listen, they're uneducated. They're untrained. They're on the lower end of this thing. But in Acts 17, here's what they're going to say about these untrained, unlearned men. That they have turned the world upside down. 17 chapters in. They've turned the world upside down. Two centuries into Christianity, it was the most powerful force in Rome. More powerful than the Roman army. Three centuries in... It was so powerful that the emperor at that time would have thought it to be wise to go ahead and just declare that we are going to be a Christian nation, a Christian empire. That is the story of the book of Acts working itself out. Okay, now here's the link that I need to make this morning as we get started. I think all of what we see in the book of Acts and in history all goes back to what Luke is saying here. That it all goes back to what I have formally written to you in the gospel of Luke. It all goes back to what I began to, or what I dealt with, what I began to say about the life and the teaching of Jesus. All of this powerful stuff that you see over here, all goes back right here. Um, when I was in college, I, I was a senior. I had switched majors to business. And this was just kind of one of those defining moments that forever just kind of etched into my heart. My business professor, he held up this chart of companies that he said were the top 10 companies in 1930. Held them up, read them. I'd ne- well, I've heard of most of them, but they're not around. He, he, he held up now, this was in 2000 roughly. Holds up year 2000, top 10 companies. And he makes this comment. None of them are on the list. All these 70 years ago were at the top of their game. None of them made it to 2000. 
And here was his insight from that. He said, okay, I want you to see this point. There's a lot of factors that got come into the collapse of a company, but here are the, here's the main one. When a company loses its main thing, its death is imminent. When you lose the main thing, you're on the downward slope. So he said this, here's the two-step process. Number one, you have to make sure you know what your main thing is. Number two, you have to keep the main thing the main thing. Now, if you were to go in Lifeway Bookstore tomorrow, you're going to see a lot of really good books. Most of them good. I mean, most of them are fine. You, you go in there, you're going, to see a vari- you're going to see them on the rapture. You're going to see, is this pre-trip, post-trip? Um, you're going to see all this stuff. I mean, you're going to have them on marriage. Fi- all of these things. All of that's good. I'm not downplaying any of those things. I'm just saying this, though. They're not the main thing. It's not the main thing. Okay, so, so Luke, here's what he's doing. He's saying, I want to remind you before you start reading this, before I lay out for you all of these wonderful things that these people have done through the power of the Holy Spirit, before any of that, I want to remind you what is the main thing. I want to make sure that you are centered on the main point, that you have the source at the center, that the main piece has its place at the center of all things. Okay, so Luke is saying, before you read, you need to make sure this happens because this is the source of what you're about to read. Okay, so if you flip back to Luke, here's what you're going to find. You're going to find some different things about Jesus. You're going to see that um, chapter two in Luke, you're going to see that Jesus came. And Jesus came is a huge part of the story. Jesus coming is a huge deal. Philippians two is going to kind of talk about it in these terms, that Jesus um, basically left heaven did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. That is a big deal when God makes himself nothing. I don't know many of us that set out to make ourselves nothing. That's what Jesus did. Left heaven, Jesus came making himself nothing. You go on in Philippians 2, it's going to say that he took on the very nature of a servant. So Jesus has the right over all of creation, didn't come to bring uh, the scepter, but he picks up the towel and serves. Jesus coming is a big deal, but that's not the main thing. Jesus performing miracles is a big, I mean, can you imagine the beauty of, of a parent bringing a demon-possessed boy to Jesus and Jesus casting a demon out and the boy is healthy? I mean, that is beautiful. But the miracles are not the main thing. Okay, how, the resurrection. The resurrection is huge. Without it, 1 Corinthians is going to say we have nothing. But the resurrection is not the main thing. Here's what all the gospels, here's what, here's what all of them are going to say. This is the main thing. The main point, before you go into Acts, we have got to be here. The main thing is the cross. The main thing is Jesus crucified. Like you could say it this way. The, the, okay, Jesus' mission, that mission is all about his death. Okay, nowhere in the scriptures are you going to see that Jesus came to be resurrected. Jesus came to to perform a miracle. You're not going to see that. You're going to see this, though. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. That is the picture of Jesus coming. Miracles, they substantiate it. The resurrection proves it. Jesus coming, he had to come to give his life. But the cross is the main thing of the gospel. The cross is the gospel. Okay. 
Stephen Neal said it this way. In the Christian theology of history, the death of Jesus is the central point in history. Here, all roads of the past converge. And he's going to say this. Hence, all roads of the future diverge. So the cross is the central thing. That's what he's saying. I, I think it's interesting when you just consider logos. I think it's interesting just looking at logos. If you're to think of the United States of America, one of the first things that I think of is the flag. I mean, in essence, that is almost the logo of the United States. So when you see a red, white, and blue flag, that's what kind of pops into your brain. It represents this image of the United States behind it. Okay, that's what logos do. They represent the main thing underneath it. Now, when you think of Christianity, there was a lot of different things they could have chosen. I mean, they could have gone with Noah's Ark. They could have gone with the tomb. They could have gone with a ton of different things. But isn't it interesting that they went with the cross? Here's what John Stott says about this. It's the cross, okay, it's choice. The choice of the cross as the symbol of Christianity had a more specific explanation. It says this, they, the Christians, wish to commemorate as as central to their understanding of Jesus, neither his birth nor his youth, neither his teaching nor his service, neither his resurrection nor his reign, nor his gift of the Holy Spirit, but his death, the crucifixion. That became the central imagery of what we are as Christians. The logo of Christianity. 2,000 years later, it's sitting in a place of worship, and that is the backdrop of all that we do. It is the central thing that moves and motivates every other thing. The cross. I think it's interesting in Galatians 6, here's what Paul's going to say about it. He's going to say, as for me, written the third of the New Testament, as for me, I will boast in nothing except the cross. As for me, I will live in, boast in, I will boast in nothing except the cross of Christ. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to lay out um, four pictures of the cross, biblical pictures of the cross that I think help explain it to us on how the cross can become the thing that all of these radical acts we're going to see in Acts flow from. So we're going to just look at these four biblical pictures, and each one of these pictures are going to highlight a different nuance of what the cross represents and what the cross means. None none of the pictures stand by themselves. It takes all of these pictures to come around the cross to form a biblical perspective of what the cross is, what it does, what it accomplishes, how it motivates in you and I, how it moves us to these radical acts of sacrifice. So here we go. Um, We're going to be in Romans chapter 3, and three of these four images are going to be here for us. Romans chapter 3. This is Paul writing in. Here's what he's going to say. But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Christ to all who believe. Verse 22, uh, coming into verse 23. Now there is no difference. Verse 23, a verse many of you are familiar with. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's amazing to me how many people have that verse memorized. But the next verse is the important one. I mean, the next verse is where it's at, verse 24. And all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Okay, so here's picture one. 
It's this word propitiation. Probably not a word you used yesterday. I mean, this is not one that as you're um, watching TV, you look over to the wife and say, hey, just thinking about propitiation, what are you thinking about? It normally doesn't go that way, all right? And so you're going to see this, this word play itself out several places in the New Testament. First John 2 is going to say the same thing, that Jesus was the propitiation for our sin. Now, now, here's the imagery that this thing stirs up. It takes us to the temple. Propitiation moves us into the temple courts, into the ceremonial look at the cross. And, and here's what it's going to refer to. Propitiation means to appease wrath, to satisfy wrath. That's what it means. So here's, here's the two things this, this image is going to emphasize for us. And the first one's not going to be overly popular, all right? Um, here's the first one. Number one, it emphasizes that wrath is on the way. Now, I, I want you to listen just real closely here because this is, this is important. It emphasizes, okay, propitiation means to appease, to satisfy the wrath of God. Emphasis. Wrath is on the way. Here's the biblical portrait of all of us. This isn't just you. This is all of us. The biblical portrait goes like this. If you just look at the context of Romans chapter 3, you look at Romans 1, 2, and 3. Romans 1, 2, and part of 3 all are trying to prove this point, and they do. That you and I as human beings, people, we are born sinful. We're not, okay, now I know this is offensive to say that we are sinful. That is offensive, but here's the, here's the truth. The reality behind it is it's true. We are. Here's how Augustine, he was a theologian in third century. Here's how he's going to say it. I think this imagery, it almost cracks me up. He's going to say this to illustrate how sinful we are. When a baby is born, if that baby had the ability and the power it would turn around to its mother and rather than crying for milk, it would grab her by the throat and demand it. That's the biblical picture. That we are born into sin. That all of us by nature, this is what we are. This is what we do. Okay, that, that's the, okay, now, if that offends you, and if you're like, okay, you know what? I don't, I, I think we are good. He, I heard this by John Newton, the guy that wrote Amazing Grace. He said this about sin. If you don't believe that you're sinful by nature, he said, it's not enough to tell you. Typically, people are taught that by being shown it. And so just watch yourself over the next week. Just watch how you react. I've been thinking about this just in me this week. And there's been a couple of things that if I just reacted to things, the first thought into my brain is like thoughts like this. I'll just kill him. I'm like, whoa. Where'd that Okay, it, it illustrates this, that we are sinful people. This is who we are. This is the biblical... Okay, now here's the problem with this, though. Ju, or, or, propitiation is not just saying that we're sinful people. It's saying that the wrath of God is going to destroy sinful people. That gets even worse. So however offensive the first part was, now we're into a whole new category. Now it's not that we're sinful. It is that Jesus is coming... And all of his fury is about to be unleashed on him. That he has got wrath. Philippians, or, uh, Ephesians 2 is going to say that literally we're objects of his wrath. That is not a good thing. Like this is how one of my favorite preachers kind of throws this imagery out there for it. He says that it is like you are standing downstream from a dam that is a thousand miles wide and a thousand miles tall. 
and all of a sudden you see it crack right in the center. That is the picture of us in our sinful state. Not just that we're sinful, but that the wrath of God is about to be poured out on it. Is that brutal to you? I mean, that, that's a desperate situation when I think about it. Now, here is propitiation. Wrath is on the way, but Jesus absorbs it. That's the cross. The beauty of the... Okay, if we don't see our condition sinful, wrath on the way, the cross will never be what it's meant to be for you and I. We have got to see this Wrath is on the way, sinful. Here it comes. And here's the beauty of it. Jesus absorbs it. On the cross, it's poured out. Okay, when when you hear the cross talked about, here's normally the way it's talked about. Um, Jesus was falsely accused. He was beat. He was spit upon. His beard was pulled out. He was nailed to a tree. He was scourged. He was all of this stuff. And all that is a reality. All that is true. But that is not the pain of the cross for Jesus. When Jesus and John's going to say, I pray that this cup would pass from me, he did not have in mind the physical torment. Here is what he had in mind when he said, will this cup please? pass from me. It was the spiritual agony of all the sin of the world being thrown on to Jesus and crushing him. That's the agony of the cross. That's the beauty of the cross for you and I. Wrath is coming. Jesus is the propitiation. He absorbs it for you and I. When Psalms will make a good point, like when you're reading through the Psalms, it's going to say this, Selah. And it says, stop and think about it. Will you just close your eyes just for a second? And think about this. Wrath is coming. The sword is bared. And Jesus absorbs it on the cross. All the fury poured out on him. All the grace poured out on you and I. That's the cross. That's propitiation. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus absorbs it. Romans chapter 3. Verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24. And are justified by his grace. And then it's going to make this phrase, a beautiful phrase. Through the redemption of that is in Christ Jesus, through the redemption, redemption second picture. And so now we have moved from the ceremonial to the temple courts. Now we are in the marketplace. Redemption is a marketplace term. It's this purchasing idea. Here's what redemption biblically refers to. It's the purchasing of a prisoner for the purpose of setting him free. The purchasing of a prisoner so that he can be set free from his prison cell and his prison chains. That's the picture. Here's what it's going to emphasize as it relates to the cross. That you and I are prisoners of sin. That we're prisoners. Okay, so it's not just that we're sinful. It's not just that we're born in sin. It's not, it it, it adds on to that. It's not just that we're sinful. It is that we are thrown into the prison cell of sin. The key is thrown away and we can't get out. 
It is like your big brother is holding you down and you cannot get free. That is the picture of redemption, that we have been thrown into the prison of sin and we have got no way out of that prison. That's brutal. Okay, your biblical imagery of this is going to come like with the people of Israel. They are in captive in Egypt. They are brutalized and they have no power to escape it. They can't just wake up one day and say, you know what, I'm out. Sorry, I'm done. They can't do that. They don't have the power to walk out of Egypt. Okay, that's the imagery of our sin. I can, when, when I say that we're a prisoner of sin, like I think there's a natural thing that flares up in us that goes like this. I can change if I want to. Really. Try it. I, I think this is the best proof of it. Go the next week and don't sin. See how that works for you. I, it becomes really clear really quickly that we are prisoners in that stuff. That there is a chain locked around us with it. Redemption. We're prisoners. And here's the beauty of the cross. That Christ rescues. Is that beautiful? Christ rescues. Okay, here's the picture in 1 Peter 1, 17. Let me just read this to you. And if you call on him as father who judges, judges impartially according to each one's deeds, con, uh, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And listen to this. Knowing that you were ransomed, that you were redeemed, that you were purchased, that you were bought from your futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not, from, not with imperishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So here's what, here's what Peter's saying, that you were purchased, you were ransomed at the cross, not with gold, not with silver, but with the cross, with the precious blood of Jesus. He paid for your rescue. He redeemed you from the prison of sin. And listen, not just from the consequences of sin, not just from hell, but from the dominion of it. From the dominion of it. So now that if we are in Christ, that the cross has slammed into us and changed us, there is no excuse for sin. It remains no longer. We have been set free from it. Not teaching perfection, but I am teaching this, that there is and ought to be a serious pursuit of holiness because of the cross. Jesus has rescued you. He has redeemed you. He has bought you. It ought to stir in us this affection to live holy for Jesus. Selah. Why don't you close your eyes just for a second? Imagine being in the prison cell. No hope of getting out. No key to release you. Without the power to break the bars. The cross of Christ melts them away. That's the picture. That's the cross. Romans chapter 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, verse 24. And all are, and this is our third word, justified by his grace. Justif okay, here's the third picture, justification. So now we have moved from the ceremonial, the temple courts, from the marketplace, and now we're into the, basically to the law court. We, we are in the, the judicial system now. We are in the court of law. And here's what this picture is going to emphasize. And here's what justification means first. Justification means there is an acquittal. 
Somebody has taken your place and you have been acquitted of the crime. It's the opposite of condemnation. You're either justified or you're condemned, one or the other. So so here's what this picture is going to emphasize, that we are all guilty. So it's not just that we're sinful people, but it's that we are guilty. Okay, can you imagine? Okay, and, and I know this is, again, it's offensive stuff. Okay, to say that we are guilty, to say that we are guilty of our sin. The, the most often quoted verse now is judge not lest you be judged. So I know this runs across the grain just a little bit, but here's the biblical picture that all of us, we are all going to face judgment someday. You, me, and on that day, everything's going to be exposed. Every lie, everything we have tried to keep, uh, tried to keep under the surface, all of that is going to be brought to the light. So we're all going to be judged, and here is what justification is saying that you are going to be found guilty. That you and I. And listen, this is not, um, well, I, I know I'm better than Mike. I mean, come on. Like maybe he's going to get the bad end of it. But surely, if not, it is all of us being judged, not with standards across this room. We are talking the standards of God. Here's what the standards of God are going to say, that your best acts are nothing but filthy rags. Your best so he's saying, here's the picture of justification. On that day, we are all going to be found guilty. Can you imagine that scene? And like I've seen it a couple of times, never in person, just on TV. But that scene where the gavel is slammed down and the judge looks at somebody and says, you're guilty. Here is your sentence. Can you imagine the crushing weight of that? Could you imagine if this was your sentence? You are forever in prison. You are condemned to death. Can you imagine the weight of that? That is our plight. That is our condition. We are all guilty. Here is the beauty of the cross. That Christ justifies. And listen, we have no like legal equivalent to this. We have no equivalent for somebody rushing into the courtroom as the gavel is slammed down. You're condemned. We have no equivalent to somebody coming in and saying, listen, I am righteous though. So, so rather than condemning him, transfer my righteousness to him, his guilt to me. I will take that punishment. He can have my freedom, my life. We have no equivalent for that. But that is what the cross does. You are guilty. I am guilty. The sentence has been declared. And all of a sudden, Jesus rushes in on the cross. His righteousness placed over us, our guilt over him. Is that not beautiful? that Christ justifies, we are condemned and Christ justifies us, reverses the curse. Selah, why don't you stop just for a second and close your eyes. Over your life, the gavel has been slammed down, condemned. Christ barges in, you're justified. The sentence of death is no longer yours. You are justified. Last image, and then we're done. Reconciliation. This is the last, um, and and there's a few others, but this is the last one we're going to talk about this morning. And here's why I saved it to the last, because I think it's the most precious, because it's the most personable. And so here's the idea of justification playing out. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. 
goes like this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That is the picture of God making somebody new. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And listen to verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Through Christ reconciled us to himself. So it's now, it's not just that we are sinners. It's not the picture. The picture is that we are enemies with God. So Ephesians 2 is going to say, listen, it's not just that you're sinful people. It's that you are at war with God. That is not, um, I'm hacked off at them. That is not, um, they kind of get on my nerves. That's not, I'm not hanging out with them this weekend. That is, I'm trying to kill you. You are trying to kill, we are at war with one another. So here's what reconciliation automatically implies, that there is a problem. Um, a few months ago, I was playing racquetball with Mike Carter. I don't know where he is. This is my favorite illustration to kind of throw this into play for us. Um, he hits me with the racquetball. In that moment, all I could think about was I wanted to get behind him the next point I had, and I wanted to hit him as hard as I could and hopefully tear meat off of his calf with that ball. That's what I was thinking. Okay, now in that moment, okay, listen to me. In that moment, like as soon as I say, we've got a problem, it implies that there has been a fracture in the relationship. Reconciliation implies that we are at war with God. Now, I don't know if that's how you see yourself, but that's how the Bible sees us apart from Christ. That he is on one team, we are in the other, and they are at war with one another. That's the picture. Now, it's one thing to be at war with me or to be at war with your neighbor, be at war with your... It's one thing to be at war there. It's another thing to be at war with God Almighty. Amen? So we are enemies with God, and here's the picture of reconciliation. Christ restores. He reconciles. So we have gone from being an enemy with God to an object of his affection. Okay, now this is how I want to close it with just an imagery of what reconciliation does for us. Um, have you ever thought about how strange it is to make this comment? You can have a personal relationship with Jesus. Thought about how strange that is? I mean, for us, that sounds like normal vocabulary. You can have a personal relationship with God. You can have that. I can have that. Because of re- we, we can have that. For thousands of years, the people of, of God would not have, they wouldn't have dreamed of even making a statement like that. I mean, for thousands of years, they're in a system that is much different. Here's the Old Testament system. Um, God tells Moses, you build a traveling little tabernacle. You set up a tent, and in there, I'm going to reside. Later on, David builds kind of a permanent structure, a temple. And and here's kind of the layout of this temple. You have got in the outside room, it's going to basically like a holy place. And then you're going to have this inner room, and it's going to be called the Holy of Holies. And behind a curtain in the Holy of Holies, behind that curtain is the Ark of the Covenant. And this is going to be the place where God's presence resides. That is where God is, but it is behind a curtain. One day a year, the priest, the high priest, would go into that uh, most holy place, the Holy of Holies, and he's going to make sacrifice for the sake of the people to reconcile them to God. One time a year, he goes in there. They would tie a rope around his ankle just in case while he was in there, God killed him. That is not a real secret sensitive approach. Okay, so they tie a rope around his ankle just in that case that that God slays him in there. They can drag him out. Okay, so so here's here's the picture. 
Old Testament, a relationship with God is far from reality. Okay, listen to this play. I'm just going to read these verses to you in Hebrews 9. Just listen to them. And then we're going to be done here. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. And it's just explaining what we just talked about. In its first room with a lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread, this was called the holy place. This is the outer room of the temple. Behind the second curtain, behind that curtain was a room called the most holy place where uh, it had the golden altar of incense, the golden ark uh, of the covenant. The ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, all of these things representing the presence of God all behind this curtain. You can't get back there curtain. This curtain, it's a wall. That curtain, all of it's behind that. You come on down in Hebrews 9, verse 23, and you're going to see that there's a new deal on the horizon. It's going to say this. It was necessary then for the copies of these heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. In other words, all these Old Testament things are just imagery of what's to come. And all of them had to be purified with these sacrifices. These Old Testament animals had to be slain on the people's behalf. But the heavenly things themselves were better than these sacrifices. Verse 24, for Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood that is not his own. Then Christ, who would have, have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but now he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. So these verses make clear all of this Old Testament, this curtain that you can't get around, that curtain that keeps you from God, that curtain that separates you from the presence of God, there is a new deal on the horizon. Most of y'all have watched The Passion of the Christ probably. And if you've seen that, you have seen the brutal entry to the Passion, to his death. I mean, you have seen the scourgings, you have seen the beatings. That is a brutal picture. Doesn't even look like a human being. Eventually he is knelt to the cross and he's slaughtered. He dies there. And before he does, he says this, that it is finished. In that moment, in in, uh, Matthew 27, it says this, at that moment, it is finished. I've breathed my last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rock split. Now, if you've seen the passion of the Christ in that moment, there's this teardrop from heaven. It hits the ground and havoc breaks out. The earth quakes. I mean, you have got just disaster happening everywhere. The sky turns black. And as that earth quakes, the temple curtain, that you can't get behind me curtain, that this is a wall between me and you, between God and us curtain. That curtain is ripped from top to bottom, and now the new deal is present. Now the curtain that separated us from God is transformed to a completely new picture. Now the picture is this, that we have a living room scene. We have been reconciled to God. The curtain is gone. This curtain that keeps us away from God is no longer there. Now we sit here having coffee with Jesus. Now we can sit here, no curtain separating. And we're reconciled to God Almighty. And you know what you're going to see throughout the book of Acts? That all of these people with these radical sacrificial acts of love, all of them sit like this with Jesus. They're not off the stage. They're not in another room. They're not separated by a curtain. They are like this with Jesus. 
We've been reconciled. Let me ask you this question as we close. The cross has made all of this possible. Are you sitting like this with Jesus? This is what the cross does. Tears the curtain apart and gives us the living room. Amen? Why don't you pray with me? God, we thank you for the cross. God, we celebrate it. We thank you that on the cross, Jesus absorbed the wrath. On the cross, he justifies us. He redeems us. He has reconciled. He has restored us. And oh God, I pray that we would not take that for granted. God, I pray that we, like Paul, would say that as for us, we will boast in nothing but the cross of Christ. This made all of this possible. We're going to sing this last song that we sing in our worship set again to end this service. And, and I think this offers you a great time of just repentance. How dare us live unholy when Christ has redeemed us? How dare us live off the stage when Christ has reconciled us? He's given us the living room. And so as the Holy Spirit speaks, as we sing this song about the depth of the Father's love for us, that would send His Son in the midst of a searing pain to the cross for a wretch like you. And as we sing that, May God bring to mind areas and issues that need to be repented of so we can live in the living room. And may a sermon like this, may the cross of Christ, may we be reminded today that this is where it starts. We never move past it. We just move into it into a more profound way. We never move past this. This is the spring from which the acts of the apostles flow. May we live there. So why don't you stand with me as we sing this last song.